Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful for the chance to sit down with uh, two friends, Janice Bangler, Anthony Miller. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Fantastic. My wife and I just got back from a week in Glacier National Park. Mm, that sounds like fun. It doesn't get any better than that. Good, good, good. Good, good, good. Um, all right. So here we are, session nine, Jack Cornfield's uh, Buddhism for Beginners, right? Is that what that's the title? Yes. Uh, and uh, I listened to session nine again this morning. I was actually getting a pedicure with my wife and uh, got my nails painted hot pink on, <laughs> on my feet. So that's kind of fun. It's the first time I've ever done color. And she's like, why don't we get matching color? I'm like, uh, all right. I'm, for once, I'll do, I'll do it. So it looks great. And uh, listen to session nine and listen to Jack. Jack has a voice I could just, I could just sit on the couch and nap to, you know, he's such a good calling calming voice. Yeah. Yes. And the session nine, I kind of expected it to be short because there were just four things to cover, but those four things turned it, turned into a solid page of notes for me. And um, again, tell us what, what are the four things he's pointing to? What are the, what is he calling these? The four divine abodes. The four yeah. divine abodes. Yes. And uh, they're named compassion, joy, equanimity, and openness. Um, no, sorry. Love and kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And then he talked about openness after that. Um, all right. So I don't necessarily, we could take each one of these and talk, but I think it might be more effective to kind of work uh, in an, in opening up some of what he said, and then we can, well, I think we'll cover these four naturally in that process. So he talks about uh, compassion in any circumstance. And uh, later on in the conversation, he talks about the only way to freedom uh, is love and kindness. And I think that this all goes hand in hand. And I think we're going to jump all around today, but maybe do you, either one of you guys want to maybe start us off with compassion in any circumstance that seems really difficult to do and it feels like the right thing to do. So can I can I back up and give an overall thing first and then I love this question. Please my brain doesn't work that way. So please by all means like keep <laughs> us keep us organized. Okay. Well one of the things that he started this out with and I think it's really a, a really great thing to keep in mind, I think, as we're applying any of the um the things that we're talking about in this whole series, right? Um, but he starts with the question of what is the heart of a Buddha? And I find this to be huge to the whole discussion um, for myself, because what he talks about is, yes, meditation is awareness. It's, you know, um, getting to, to be able to see things the way they are. But even more, and I found this to be key, it is letting go of the entanglements that we have with our fear and our confusion and our grasping and all the other things. And it's allowing all of that that brings in our small self to fall away. And the reason I think this is huge is that I think we are in a society that comes from an opposite view, which is we're fallen, we're, we, we, we need to be saved from something, our actual nature is not good. Um, I think that's what Christianity has turned into um, largely in our society. So we come from this one down place where I always have to be good enough to overcome my nature. And for someone like me who is prone to that kind of thinking, um, this just this one thing um, has been so freeing for me to consider that maybe my nature and the nature of every human being is actually these four abodes. It's actually these good things that come up. Um, and all we have to do is let go. It's a letting go, not a learning a new way to save ourselves or to, to allow someone else to save us. It's actually a way of letting go to let what is naturally within me thrive and just let it out into the world. To me, that is a very helpful metaphor. That feels real too, doesn't it? Like when you sit with those four things, your best self seems drawn to them. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was at a party last night with friends. Uh, we were at a little bar here in St. George and uh, 
just good people. And I wanted each of them to feel my care and love and concern for them. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel pity. We'll get into that later, but I did feel compassion for their, what makes their challenges unique to mine. What makes their hardships unique to mine? I think, yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know where I want to go with that, but that, I think you hit it. That's to have that Buddha mind is to be our best selves and our best selves is good. And it is drawn to good ways in which to interact with others and to think about others and to think about the world around us. So thank you for that. Um, now kind of maybe jumping into that idea of compassion in any circumstance, do you, do either one of you have any thoughts? And I don't know that I grabbed everything. This was my top note in my list. Um, any thoughts here on what compassion means to you? Um, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've got some thoughts. Um, Please. One of the things that Jack said in this section was, uh, it is a quivering of the heart that is touched by the pain of another. And I think that that's uh, that's just a very simple way of thinking of that. Because a lot of these things are hard mm. to even put into words what it is, but it's an experience we've all touched. And so I think we have to get into some poetic language, you know, a quivering of the heart to, to really even understand what these things are. Uh, but it's it's a holding in the in our heart the sorrows of a, of others the sorrows of the world, and um, one of the things that he talks about is um, how it's sometimes it's helpful for me to see things for what they're not, and um, each of these things in Buddhism they have a a near enemy and a far enemy. Um, each of these four. And for compassion, the near enemy is pity or grief. I think the near enemies are the things that we fall into so easily we don't even see it. Like it's easy to see the far enemy that cruelty might be the opposite of compassion. But the near enemy is pity or grief. You know, as we consider the suffering of another person, as we consider the suffering of the world, it is so easy to fall into and get sucked into grief get sucked into being despondent, get sucked into, um, you know, the, just the, the, the fear and sadness and grief that, that it can envelop us when we consider these things. Uh, but really, compassion is not getting sucked into that. Um, it's noticing that we all have this sense of one another. And pity, I love the way that he words this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote Jack. It's thinking of another person as, oh, that poor person is suffering, as if that were somehow different from us. And I find that to be such a key to this whole thing. It's, I think we have to recognize our similarities. How are we just like everybody else? When we consider that, it takes on a new quality as we sit in compassion with people. Kind of reminds me of Brene Brown. She's got a... um, you know, really a, a great way of explaining sympathy versus empathy. And that sympathy, I think, is this quality that he's talking about of pity. It's, oh, that poor person. Yeah, I feel bad for them. But it's a separate thing than being really in solidarity and in grief of sitting, getting down in the hole with somebody, deep empathy and sitting with them and really feeling what they're feeling without being taken down by it. Yeah, he he. When he refers to pity, he says, "Oh, look, they are suffering as if they are different than us, right?" Yeah, exactly. And so I think you hit it on the head, which is that pity is to see someone's challenge or the hardship, and rather than recognize it could just as well be yours, you you. It's almost like thank God it's not me, you know. Yes. And and you're right. It is. There's distance. There's not connection and pity. There is connection in compassion. Yes. Um, man. And and had had this conversation, us three not initiated this and had Jack not talked about it, I would have been hard pressed if you would have said, Hey, what's the difference between compassion and pity? I, I might have wrestled with that for a minute, but yeah, pity is distant. You used the word despondent. That's a great word. Um, any thoughts from you, Anthony? Yeah, I mean I think we'll circle back through this over and over again in this discussion where 
these these four abodes of loving kind kindness where we have an active good will towards all where we're part of the all N not just other human beings in the examples he shares but but that were but he talks about creatures with no legs creatures with two legs four legs and many legs that uh, that we have a sense of active goodwill and and love and loving kindness towards all towards all things so it's a connection with all and this compassion where we identify the the suffering of others as our suffering also and the empathetic joy where we identify and experience the joy of others and the happiness of others even if we didn't contribute to it as as our joy too and then the equanimity where we approach relationships and connection uh with not only other human beings but with all things with an even mindedness and a serenity and treating everyone impartially so like jana brought up jack talks about how this is our natural state and he doesn't use the word that we get programmed but but throughout our life some of these things fall away but this is really our natural state of things when you think of a, of a child who has a mirroring type of experience where when someone else is suffering, they empathetically feel that suffering where that child, when someone else experiences joy, it's contagious for them. Um, uh, that level of innocence or, or, or connection that, that people have with things. And I was also thinking about experiences in my life where being in these abodes gave me a great sense of connection and meaning that I attributed to those experiences, spiritual experiences. So it was like one example was here in Billings, Montana, um, we worked really hard to get a, a, a temple. And I remember having a state conference and we were all singing the spirit of God, like a fire is burning. And we were all together in that moment and we shared this, shared connection of joy and this shared connection of goodwill towards everyone that was there and that sense of connection and belonging i i described that as a spiritual experience i interpreted it different i interpret it differently now than i did then in terms of what that means but it was a real connecting experience that i had or going to a funeral of a of a dear friend that that all of the people there at the funeral like we loved that we loved that family we loved that widow we we loved that friend who passed away and that sense of connection not not like jana was distinguishing the difference between shared suffering and pity or grief right not that we're just like closed off from the connection of others processing our own grief, but that we're there with the other person and we're sharing with them that experience of suffering, that they are a part of us and we are a part of them and that there's no distinguishing of one for the other, that this is a shared connection or abode that we have together. And, um, uh, I'll share one more more idea. I have a we have a mutual friend who uh, I had a shared in a conversation this week about um, meaning and meaninglessness, and the recognition that some of these things are games are are games that we play. Like like we're talking about these things that provide us a sense of meaning and connection. And from a scientific, chemical, biological standpoint, yeah, what happens when we do these things? We experience elevation emotion. We experience dopamine in our system. We have serotonin, right? We know how the illusory truth effect works, right? If we say something over and over and over again, 
it becomes part of us and we naturally believe it. That's what the game, that's one of the games, right? We know that if we have a meditative loving kindness mantra, that the result was, is going to be that we're, that's going to be more internalized in us. And so these are all games that a hundred years from now or 500 years from now, when we're all long gone, what we do today in this moment won't have had any meaning beyond this moment, but we still play the game. We still do the illusory truth effect. We still participate in these things because, because the real meaning is in this connection, this recognition of the moment when we are one uh, with all other things. Those were some of the thoughts that went through my mind. You know, I, I've probably said it at least three times in the the now nine sessions that we've done, but the, the Eckhart Tolle quote, like, we are the universe experiencing itself as a human for a little while. Again, once you grab, if you, and, and maybe some will have trouble with this, and I'm not suggesting they throw it out, but if for, for 10 seconds, set religion off to the side completely. Pretend all those stories, we can't know if they're true or if they are. Uh, we certainly can't maybe know some of these things if they're true. And um, for just a moment, recognize that over the course of 13.2 billion years, elements, carbon, um, elements have shifted and altered and manipulated to the point where your the elements formed your body and you have this consciousness in you. And this consciousness tells you you are your own person, but I'm telling you it's bullshitting you. It's, it's a lie. And the reality is you are the universe experiencing this particular consciousness, but also experiencing billions upon billions upon billions of other consciousnesses right at this very moment, including the tree that's outside your front yard, including the neighbor who's walking down the street, including the dog who's um, out with his, with his owner. And all the ideas in our head that we are separate is, is again, I hate to do it, but I think it's impactful is to say it's bullshit. And we really are a thing, a same thing that is moving around independently and has this awareness that seems independent. But that, again, you're talking about games. There's another game that we're playing. Um, you are one with everything. And but, said the other time, you are alone too. Well, but then we need to put in work to let go of that individual ego as well as the collective ego. Yeah. Like that somehow we're different than the Canadians, right? Because we <laughs> have this myth construct of a yeah. border and a country and somehow we're different or that we're different than 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 the Afghan, the Afghans that are going yeah. through, like we're part of the whole, but it does we're require putting in. We're the bad guys. Yeah. 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 We're, we're both good and bad. Right. Yeah. And we're so just the universe fighting with itself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it, and it takes some of these practices to start to see that true nature within ourselves. And I don't, I don't have the answers. I don't know how it works, but what I do know is in working within contemplative groups and contemplative thought, there seems to be this pretty universal thing that as we let all of those entanglements go and get more and more in touch with that bigger self that's underlying everything, it seems to be exactly what you're all talking about and pointing to, which is it's all an illusion and we are all part of the same thing. And I will just note that in my own experience and so many others that I've worked with, there seems to be a really deep sense of well-being that comes with the realization that we are all part mm. of the same thing. Yeah. That's the reason we keep having these conversations. There's something mm -hmm. nourishing and positive inside us that expresses itself when these conversations and this awareness occurs. Absolutely. And oh. it's really hard to get to. I, I just want to acknowledge that. Like it is a really hard, this is why these are lifelong practices. This is not just a, a, an aha moment, but there can be those little moments along the way. And I, I, I appreciate that Jack will give us these little hints of here's something that you can do 
to, to tap in. And one of the things he mentions in the compassion section um, was just to note that you can see everyone as somebody's child. There seems to be something very universal about humans. I mean, you picture holding a newborn child. For anyone who's ever done this, we understand the innate preciousness. You can't even explain, but there's a preciousness to this other life that's so new and so fresh. And yeah. if we can bring that awareness that we can't even put your finger on of what that is or why, right? We can sit and talk about it all day long and never get to what that is, but we've all touched it and experienced it. But if you bring that awareness to one another and recognize that everybody is that, it's a way in. Every serial killer was a precious little child once. Absolutely. And because of the events that happened to that kid, the sense of abandonment or whatever trauma that kid received, he turned into something that caused a lot of harm and havoc and, and trauma on the world. Um, but yeah, if we all, if we all could sit in that appreciation of that preciousness, then that kid grows up with a completely different, different set of circumstances and becomes something else and almost certainly something less traumatic on the world. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I started with compassion. Let's hit love and kindness for a moment. He talks about how this group of people are meditating in a cave and he says that uh, they, they tried to do the meditation. The noises in the cave were too scary. There was noises they didn't recognize. They wondered what animals might be around. And so out of fear um, they left and I don't remember who he was saying they were talking to, if it was supposed to be the Buddha or who it was. Um, but the person gives the advice, fine, I'll give you a meditation that will help you overcome your fear. And um, he says, scary uh, to, to, I'm sorry, to not leave the cave in fear or danger, you'll have to have love and kindness uh, for, and I put all around you. So for everyone or everything all around you. And, and I tried to think in that moment, like if I encountered a bear in a hiking trail and that bear is not happy, man, you talk about having to be present, how, how to be full of love and kindness for the animal that looks like it wants to rip your throat out. But he says, that's the only way not to be scared because the moment is the moment, whether you experience fear and actually maybe the experiencing of fear will make you less apt to deal with the situation. You'll be more in lizard brain than being present and knowing what is wise to do to give you the best chance to get out of the situation. But man, in these stressful moments, it is hard to do that. But love and um, love and kindness, those, um, I, I don't want to say feelings. It's a way of being. Love and kindness is the way to not have fear of the dangers that are around you. And let's be honest, dangers around you every day. You could slip and fall on some steps and that's it. You're it's over. Um, your thoughts on love and kindness as a way to dispel fear and maybe fear specifically of things dangerous around you. So he shares um, multiple different versions uh, of, of the meta prayer, M E T T A. Um, and and one example would be uh, kind of a meditation. Uh, may you be safe. May you be healthy. May you live with. He calls it loving kind of kindness. Uh, may you live with ease and happiness. So he has several different variations of that. Um, and he talks about getting up at three thirty in the morning and doing this <laughs> as he quietly walked. I'm like three. That would put me asleep. But um, in any event, he he talks about having this as a as a meditation, and and then to picture this meta prayer, um, you know, peace be unto you. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you live with ease and happiness. May you may may you live with loving kindness, and and you do this over and over again. And then, and then he talks about directing this meta prayer as if as if you're expressing this to another human, as you as if you're expressing this to animals with 
no legs, two legs, four legs, or many legs. And then he talks about expressing this meditative experience, this meta prayer, um, not only to people who it's easy to, to feel a connection and loving kindness to, but he talks about the process of, of doing this with someone who's a rat, like who you really don't like, um, recognizing that you're doing this even though you don't feel that way about that person. So this goes back to what I had referred to earlier is we all know that the illusory truth effect is you say something over and over and again, and it becomes true, right? Like, like if, if I want to weigh 165 pounds uh, and I don't, uh, if I weigh more than that and I want to weigh 165 pounds when I'm working out, when I'm running, when I'm on the treadmill or something, I'll have a mantra that says that I weigh 165 pounds, right? If that's what my goal is. Um, and the more that I say it, the more I'll believe it. And then, then the more momentum there will be in helping me achieve that goal through diet and exercise or whatever I needed to do to, to get to that goal. And the same thing is, is true of other things. If I have other goals, like we know that's the hack or the trick, the illusory truth effect is a hack or a trick in that we say it over and over again and we believe it and we internalize it. But here is where we get to use that hack or trick to experience a greater degree of connection and love and loving kindness for other existence, other humans, uh, animals and so forth, including ones that are hard for us to feel connected to. And we do it over and over again. Uh, and the practice increases our capacity. And then as he was describing this, and as he was describing this mantra, this meditative experience, I was thinking that's the kind of person that we all want to be around, right? Like if, if you meet someone that exudes loving kindness, that, that sense of connection and gratitude, like that is a person that you want to be around because they exude that. And, and like maybe some of it will rub off on us or something like that, right? Because we just, anyway. When you're I, with those people, you feel heard, you feel seen, right? When, when somebody seems to be in the room caring and listening and thoughtful things said about what other people's lives look like, you're like, oh, that person's like interesting because they make me feel interesting, right? Like, like, like we all are attracted to those personalities and it really is moving in a healthy way through the world to, to show up that way. So I had a little bit of, of a wrestle when I started considering this one. And, um, you know, we're, we're hearing him, like, so Jack says, this is loving kindness is to touch with love that which we have touched with fear. Okay. So back to kind of what you were talking about, Bill, with, mm, you know, there are these things true. in the cave and I'm hearing these things and I'm pretty sure they're going to kill me or <laughs> make life hard for me in some way. Can you um, say that one more time? The, which thing? The, the thing that, he, the, the first phrase that you were building off of the, um, mm, the, the one that he said, love, yes, the... it's to touch things with love that, uh, which, uh, that, which we have touched with fear. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the feeling around it, right? That which we have touched with fear. And so I bristled at this a little bit because, you know, if there is a bear, <laughs> I, I, I want to be able to react to that. And yeah, sure, maybe if I can stay in loving kindness with the bear, maybe I'll have a clearer head. But there really are bears in the world. So part of me is like, well, do I want to be that stupid to just... <laughs> Just love everything and be in this la-la land of everything is good, you know, just loving kindness. So, you know, people who are, who are bad to me, I just give them loving kindness and all will somehow be well. You know, there's this piece of me that really bristles at this idea. <laughs> um, and it also kind of bristles at this idea. And this he got to this, and I think this is so important. For me, it just really hit me that... Uh, having loving kindness is not 
we have to be really careful not to moralize this. And what that means is I am supposed to be loving and kind. Therefore, I'm doing something wrong if I can't, or if I have ill will towards somebody, um, that something, somehow something is wrong with me, and now I've got to get to loving kindness. I think it's so easy to think of these things that way, rather than saying, this is something actually deeper that we're dealing with. This is not just a mantra, just a, I've got to do this. I'm just, I'm just going to be more loving, gosh dang it. I'm going to ignore all of those warning signals in me. That's not what this is. It's actually getting underneath it. Again, letting go. It's this letting go idea. And recognizing that it is our true nature. Underneath all of the fear, all of the ways that our ego is trying to protect us, it's, it's seeing it for what it is, getting underneath it to let our true nature come forward in loving kindness to others. But it is not a thing that gets into, I was on a call this week with some contemplatives from the living school. and One of them said, um, contemplation is not deep ignoring. <laughs> It, it, it is deep listening. It's deep awareness. So it's not that we're going to cover over all of our fears with something good and, you know, do this, this bypass, this spiritual bypass of what's hard. It's actually we're going to deep, get into deep awareness of what it is, what the fear is, learn from it what we need to learn from it, but then let it go and let that true nature of loving kindness within us come forward. Because, um, and I loved what he said, as we try to do this sometimes, like picture someone who's been really problematic or caused you a lot of pain, right? As you imagine doing loving kindness toward them, if you've gotten good at it, at, at spreading loving kindness to what's easy in the world, um, to our friends, to the people we admire, to the things we love, um, as we try to do that with someone who's problematic, our heart will often just not let us do it. It just, we, we pull into ourselves and go, oh, you know, that that's not okay. Um, what he says is that that is the lesson is we, if we can tap into noticing that that is the nature of our heart. The nature of our heart has both of these capacities. But when we pull in, when we hold on to what is problematic with the hard people in our lives, we feel pain. Notice that. That is, that is the nature of our hearts. That when we hold on to the, to the difficulties, when we hold on to the reasons that we're not happy with this person, it causes us pain. Mm. Then we can get real and say, okay, this ill will that I'm holding toward this person is actually hurting me. So how do I get into release that, get into my true nature of loving? It doesn't mean that I'm condoning anybody. It doesn't mean I'm ignoring the pain. I can be well aware of that, but that my ill will toward this person is getting, it's not getting us anywhere. All that leads to is more pain because when I'm in pain, I cause pain in the world. Yeah. He talks about loving one's crooked neighbor with our own crooked heart. I loved that phrase. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Like yeah. it, you're right. Like uh, one facet of several, I think, beautiful things you said. Your your attitude in a given moment that is in loving kindness still may have to be firm and direct with somebody. It may have to um, scream for help in the moment of someone else's traumatic behavior. It may it may cause you to cry or to feel like, like you still get to feel the whole gamut of emotions and it doesn't require that you whisper and talk softly or allow abuses to happen in your life. You, you still get to um, stand for what's right and try to make a difference and to reduce suffering in the world. But it's like, it's not a, I'm trying to, I don't, I don't want to, it's not a way to choose to, to show up with a feeling in the world, it is a mode of operandi and it still allows for the outward behavior to maybe look very similar to not having loving kindness. Um, anyway, beautiful stuff. Yes. Brene, Brene Brown uh, says, 
daring Brene Brown says daring to set boundaries is about having the courage to love ourselves, even when we risk disappointing others, mm, loving kindness mm. for ourselves. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, there, there are people who I love dearly and who I have a sense of loving kindness and connection to who I've disappointed to extreme levels because of my loss of belief in the Mormon church. Right. So, so just because that doesn't negate the love that I have for them, that doesn't negate that maybe I negotiate what are their boundaries and what are my boundaries in terms of having a healthy relationship with each other. I, that doesn't negate that, that I can, uh, share the suffering that they experience because I've lost belief and that represents a very painful experience for them at the same time. Um, I, I still need to do what I need to do. I can do it with compassion. I can do it, um, with loving kindness and I can do it with boundaries and I can do it with courage, but it's not out of vindictiveness and it's not out of pity, you know, it's better if it's not, right? So in any event, I, I like that we're bringing up this part of the conversation. Yeah, he, he mentioned Martin Luther King in this section. Um, and he quoted him saying that it doesn't immediately change the heart at first to do this, to have this loving kindness. It doesn't immediately change the heart of the oppressor or of the the problematic people or the enemy or whom, whomever you're dealing with, it changes the hearts of the people who are committed to something better. So it first works on us. It's not like doing this. You cannot love someone into different behavior. We don't have that power, but having loving kindness, recognizing that that's at the heart of our nature changes us. And it actually helps us access self-respect. It helps us access deeper courage that maybe we didn't know we had. But then when we engage with the oppressor or with the person who has harmed or the system that has harmed or whatever it is, we do it differently. We, we, we show up differently and we show up in a way that, that stops the cycle of hatred and opens up a space for a different kind of reconciliation and, and makes a space for it to become a reality. Mm. So it's just this very practical way of saying holding loving kindness in your heart actually leads to a better way of improving the lives of all of us, the marginalized, whatever you're, you're, you're wanting to fight for you're actually more effective that way. And it's not about excusing the behavior or, you know, oh, it's fine. What it is, is it's not wishing ill will on that. It's wishing goodwill on all people, regardless of what they're bringing. And I mean, this was swirling around my head as I listened to this about all the divisions that are going on right now. We're living in such a crazy world. But, yeah. you know, if there are people who disagree with us about, you know, vaccinations or political things or, you know, anything going on in the world, all the vitriol and all of just, you know, letting that ill will flourish does nothing to heal us. We show up differently if we can show up with loving kindness in our heart. Mm. I, uh, I don't know that it, this fits exactly. I just know that it happened last night and it it felt important. I was, uh, again, at this bar in, in St. George, and one of the folks that was in our group last night is somebody that I, I know, but kind of barely know, just more of an acquaintance, and had a chance to have a really good conversation uh, with this person. And the the conversation topic was psychedelics, and they were talking about, I think, San Pedro, which I've never done. And uh, they were talking about this experience. And he said, when I, and I think it was San Pedro, I'm not really 100% sure. But he said that he took it four, five, six, seven times, and it felt 
the I said, what is it? What was it like? He goes, it, it was, it was death. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound fun. Like, I don't know what, what's going on here. He said, well, I, I did it a bunch of times and every time it felt like death, but after the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time, it, I, I learned to enjoy it. And I thought, oh my God, like he just overcame those last three minutes of each of our lives, right? Like that last three minutes, I'm scared to death of it. And I put a lot of focus into it. And he has done some sort of meditation with conscious altering tools where he essentially leaned in and sat with death to the point where now he's like, I take it. It feels like death and I love it. And I'm like, that is the craziest thing. Um, when he talks about the people in the cave and they're scared, really that fear almost always is something bad is going to happen to me. And the ultimate fear is that whatever I am independent of what everyone else is and what everything else is, that's going to come to an end someday. And I thought it was interesting as I was listening to this part in Jack Cornfield's session about the cave and fear and overcoming it with love and kindness. Um, it, it reminded me of last night and somebody's own journey of overcoming their fear in their life by just leaning right into it and learning to appreciate and love the sensation that that last three minutes is going to hold for it for any one of us. Um, going back to compassion for just a moment, I want to make sure this gets said. He, Jack said something like, may you hold your sorrows in great compassion. Like we all have sorrow holding that in compassion uh, is to recognize that all of us humans are going to experience trials and challenges and hardship and to hold our sorrows and to hold the sorrows of others with compassion. That, as you pointed out earlier, Jana, that's what gets away from pity when you hold their sorrows with compassion. Um, the next one here is joy. He says, the world is more beautiful than sadness. He says, once you make this discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. Um, help me out. Explain that to me. What is What is he trying to say there? Because I think I get it and I don't understand it either. If that makes any sense at all. What does that mean? Once you make this discovery that the world is more beautiful than sadness, and it is, by the way, look around. Uh, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. Your guys' thoughts? So so the a couple thoughts. So the, the word is, I'm saying it in English, but it's mudita or something like that is the empathetic joy word. Um, and according to Wikipedia, it means sympathetic or vicarious joy or the pleasure that comes from delighting in other people's well-being. And, and uh, I mean, what immediately comes to mind is, is being at a concert I like going to Chris Stapleton concerts, but there are other performers who are great to listen to as well. Um, you know, I, I've gone to several of the Love Loud concerts as well. And, and, and being in an experience where, where, we're ex where multiple people are experiencing joy and then we are vicariously experiencing joy through the joy of others and it kind of feeds on it. We, we feed on each other's sense of joy and connection, you know, when we're all singing a song together and we all know the words and we're sharing that moment and we're delighting in the well-being that we're experiencing and we're delighting in the well-being of others, which is a very different experience than the entanglement of, of envy or comparison, or it's not fair that they experience joy that I don't get to experience, or they don't deserve their joy, like I deserve as much joy as they've got, you know, those kinds of entanglements are a problem. And they're the opposite of this vicarious experience of, of being able to experience joy in the joy of others including in those shared experiences, like a, the example of a concert. Yeah. He says our joy is multiplied 
by the joy of others, right? Like it's exponentially greater. If I'm happy and feeling joy, that's one thing. But if the guy next to me is also feeling joy, it's not just two bundles of joy. It's something exponentially greater. And, and our joy also spreads to others, right? Um, in the same way. Um, I have such a wrestle with this one too. I, I hate to say it. I have such wrestles <laughs> with these amazing concepts that I feel like joy is a special wrestle for me. Um, you know, for those who are familiar with Enneagram, I'm, an, I'm a one on the Enneagram and I spend a lot of time <laughs> with a glass half empty. I hate seeing myself that way. It's taken me years to be able to say that because there, because as a one, I should see things half full <laughs> to be a good person. Um, and, but I really do, I, I struggle with this one. And I, I think I first became aware of this probably about four years ago when I was doing my first uh, seven day silent retreat. It was one of the things that became really uh, startlingly apparent to me is that I have a hard time accessing joy. Um, so I kind of resonated when he said, joy is more rare, difficult and beautiful than sadness. Okay, yeah. Um, for me, that is true. It is actually very mm. difficult to see it. Um, because again, I think I've, I've always felt this need to manufacture it somehow, rather than just uncovering what is already there and noticing how all of my embattlements my, with myself, with the world, my stresses keep me from it. Um, and this is really true of a one on the Enneagram. We integrate when we're in less stress um, to a more joyful seven. Sevens are very in touch with joy in the world. Um, and I recognize how little I've spent <laughs> at that place. But um, one of the things that was really apparent to me is at one point of that retreat, we did a, did a hike um, to this really beautiful place. You know, the end, the end point of the hike was just a gorgeous vista. And uh, a, a friend who was there, I noticed, just started laughing when they saw, when they beheld what they saw at the end. It was just this belly laugh of joy just coming out. And I remember looking at, at that person and going, I have not felt that kind of a feeling, I think, since I was a child. And it really made me sad at first to recognize, geez, I am not in touch with this. Um, so a couple of things that I, that, 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 that has helped me do is to start to find ways to access joy. I'm still, I still really struggle with this. So it's not as if I've arrived at something, but I have noticed like how, one of the questions I ask myself is how am I really, uh, being present to other people's good news and joy? I will admit I'm super cynical. Like I look at Instagram and I see everybody's beautiful posts, rosy posts. And my first instinct is to say, they're putting on a show. Life is hard. <laughs> what are they? You know, the, this is, this is pressure. The comparison mind comes in, but this, this really made me stop and think, how can I really actually just let go of all of that and rejoice in this beautiful, joyful moment? that this person wanted to share with me. Um, I think we get, I think it's actually our comparison mind that that gets social media a bad rap. If we could let go of our comparison mind and tap into this joy of just really appreciating and experiencing the joy of another person, then maybe we wouldn't have to feel bad about it, about everyone showing their, their perfect faces. Um, on Instagram. Um, uh, there was one, another thought I had on this. Um, oh, it was, it, Jack mentioned a story that I just loved. He talked about a rabbi who was talking to uh, um, a person who, it was on a high holy day that there sh they should be fasting. And he know it comes across someone who is eating on the high holy day. And he says to them, uh, surely you forgot that it's this day. And the person says, no, I know exactly what day it is. And then he looks at him and he says, oh, well, surely then you have, you're ill 
and you, your doctor has told you you must eat for your wellness. And he says, no, actually, I'm perfectly healthy. And the rabbi's reaction was uh, to give thanks to God for this person and that they gave him, he gave them ample excuses for his behavior. But this man refuses to deviate, even though it incriminates himself. Because he so prioritizes re- truth. He prioritizes truth and let's give thanks for that. Yeah. It's, it's this turning away from judgment and finding that there is something beautiful in every experience. There is something joyful to find in, in every kind of experience, even if it's a challenging one. So it is kind of a glass half full. And we do have to actually sometimes effort to put on those glasses. But at the same time, it's, it's actual, it, we don't have to fool ourselves. We don't have to try to do something that isn't real. It's just uncovering the beauty that is actually inherently there in it. So Mm -hmm. maybe with your friend, Bill, maybe there is an actual inherent beauty in death. (laughs) And, And your friend maybe hasn't had to convince himself of that, but he's just uncovered something that is the true nature of it. But unless we're looking for it, we may miss it. Yeah. And I think he did. And I think, as of today, uh, August 29th, I'm not, I've missed it because I'm still <laughs> scared to death of death. So um, beautiful stuff. Uh, this last one is equanimity. We're coming up kind of on an hour here. Equanimity. Um, there's a part where Jack says an open heart is tenderness. He says, if you could just reach in, get underneath that rib cage and just grab an open heart, that open heart would be tenderness. And, and I want to tie that quote into this equanimity, which you pointed to earlier, Jana, which is this idea that we, we all work together with this loving kindness to make a world where all humans, because we're all, again, part of this bigger thing, and we are all the same thing, that all humans and all life for that matter have as much of an opportunity to experience all these positive things that we're talking about to reduce the suffering. And what comes, what comes to mind is that there are those of us who have privilege and there's some piece of our ego that tries to cling to that privilege at the expense of others having to deal with more challenges and more trauma. And what I think Jack is pointing to and what Buddhism points us to in this idea of equanimity is that we've got to get away from that. We have to stop holding up our access to better things or less trauma when it hurts others and causes them to experience on a more regular basis, hurt and trauma. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we can solve that here in the next 10 minutes, but it feels as though equanimity requires me to see the person next to me who may be on the margins, might be marginalized, maybe seen by certain parts of the world as less than for whatever reason as being just me under a different set of circumstances and to Anthony, you're big on this, always trying to uh, ensure that marginalized voices have, have a greater say. And, and that's not even the right wording to have an equal say with the, those who are privileged. Um, I'm rambling here, but maybe help me out. Help me understand what, what you take away at equanimity and juxtaposing it against what our ego wants to do. So from, I would say from the outside, uh, to, to treat everyone impartially, to also amp- amplify the voices of the marginalized, um, and to accept things, you know, it is, it, it, what is, is. And right, in this moment that. it is. Yeah, you can't fix right. it right here. Right. Um, from the outside, that might seem like indifference or, you know, apathy, um, which I think is not what this is talking about. Um, and and in, indifference and apathy and uh, certainly some, that's, some people might feel that's helpful, but that 
doesn't fit into what these abodes are with equanimity. It's more of an even-mindedness, a serenity, an acceptance of what is, what is, and uh, to treat uh, others with impartiality um, and, and to have a sense, I would, I would say what would come out of that is a sense of calm, calmness, loving kindness and acceptance for other people um, with this approach, which like I said, is very different than indifference or apathy. Mm, good, good stuff. Yeah, I, um, I'll echo that, that uh, equanimity is, it's not emotional resignation. Um, it's an openness that welcomes what is without argument. Um, one of the things that Jack talks about in this one uh, is that equanimity is, it's really the thing that helps balance the other things. It helps us recognize and stay out of the entanglements that can come up with the other ones. For instance, getting too sorrowful when you're thinking of the sorrow of others in compassion or, uh, or trying to, um, you know, effort your way into lo loving kindness or joy that is actually more of a superficial thing. Um, it's the thing that just helps keep us in recognition that all of life has its, its cycles, its seasons. Um, he quotes Rilke, uh, talking about how a tree doesn't worry that the summer will never come. Summer always comes. So I almost see equanimity. Um, I, I just have this image of kind of just backing up and getting a bigger bird's eye view of everything that's going on because we can get so caught in the moment and caught in all of the things that we're supposed to do and trying to do and wanting our lives to be and taking a bigger view, 10,000 foot view um, to recognize that life is life is a cycle and then being able to trust like the tree that the summer will come even in the hard parts. And also knowing that when it is summer, the winter too is coming and we don't have to cling to the summer because as we go through winter, it will come again. So equanimity is the thing that just recognizes these bigger cycles in life. Um, and it really helps me to back up and start to see the patterns in life and that they always come around and uh, I don't have to fight. I can just notice what is, lean into what is, and and then it helps me access those other things that are in my true Buddha nature, right? It helps me to let go when I can relax and trust in those cycles of life. Beautiful stuff. All right, you two. So let's start wrapping up. What other, what other things struck you? I've got one little thing where he, towards the end, he said, rest, uh, rest, because everything passes. And I think you're hitting on that with this idea of winter and, and to just be accepting of what is, um, because life is born and life dies. And there are the, there are these cycles and, uh, whether it's our own life or the life of someone in our, our known awareness that's ill that we care deeply for whether it's um, you know an aged parent or a, a child with illness or disease we're going to have to deal with some of that in this life and we have to confront our own as well um before we get kind of that spot what other things struck you if anything before we kind of move into that space so I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole when I was looking at these and found out that these four abodes or immeasurables, uh, four infinite minds is another way of saying it. These actually pr are pre-Buddhist co concepts uh, that were in the milieu prior to Buddhism coming about. And then Buddhism adapted and interpreted them and they became a core principle to Buddhism. I thought that was very interesting. It was a bricolage with Buddhism, right? It was. Yeah. It was a, uh, Buddhism was an eclectic, eclectic aggregator. E eclectic aggregator. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we know another eclectic aggregator. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the tradition 
eclectically aggregated from things that were in its milieu and made some new things out of it. And yes, that's, it. that's what happened with these. And, and maybe we ought to understand that, that truth, truth has always been perhaps, and maybe our ability to articulate an idea is new, but perhaps the idea has always existed. Maybe. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. Right? That's the thing. <laughs> I love it. We are stardust, like you we mentioned. Are. We are yeah. stardust. Yeah. Jana, anything else that kind of caught your eye and in, in other pieces that I didn't bring out or flesh out that you want to? No, I think we've been pretty thorough. <laughs> okay. Well, I love it. So kind of just wrapping up that, that quote that I pointed to, go ahead and rest. I mean, everything passes. It There are going to be triumphant moments. There's going to be joyful moments. There's going to be sad moments. There's going to be very painful moments. There's going to be easy things where you feel like you're coasting. There's going to be moments where life is hard day after day after day. Uh, there was one point in my life where I was working two jobs, getting about two to three hours of sleep a night for a few months on end. And it was absolute hell. But I had to do it because it was the only way that our family was going to get through what we were in the middle of. And in the middle of that, I literally contemplated that death would be easier than what I was in the middle of doing. Um, I was not okay. I was, there were lots of times crying and feeling sorry for myself, um, but it passed. Look at, here we are. We're years later and things are going pretty well right now. And yet some moment ahead of me is also going to be full of tragedy and sorrow and hardship. Um, rest, everything passes. And I think we can sit with that. Absolutely. And, and I think that for me, one of the things that came out of this section is just how to achieve some sort of balance in all of this. I think sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking that if I just apply all these Buddhist principles to my life, then all will be well and I can always rest and I can always have peace and it's just beautiful and life will just move on. And, you know, Maybe there's some truth to the idea that if we were all doing it collectively, all at the same time on the earth, maybe, <laughs> but that's not life. That's not how it is. Um, there's cancer, always going to be Cancer ignores that, right? Cancer doesn't Absolutely. care. Absolutely. <laughs> A million things do. It's always going to be hard, right? And so, you know, sometimes we, um, we're a little too into uh, peace and loving kindness to notice that we actually do have to act in our world as well. I, I appreciated that he brought the serenity prayer into this. Um, mm. I, I find the serenity prayer it just is the gift that keeps giving in my life over and over again. Um, you know, God grant me the serenity to uh, accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, it's not that I just kind of let life pass me by and be okay with it. But it actually also gives me the courage to do the things I can, to try to right the wrongs that I can in the world. But the difference is, rather than doing that out of reaction and anger and hatred toward the systems that cause the oppression, it's coming from a different place. It's coming from this place of loving kindness. It's coming from a place of accessing joy, of seeing the good, so that we don't get lost in all of that. It, it changes the way that we approach those things in life. And um, so that's what I hold on to. It, and it's hard. It's hard for my brain to hold that. It's hard for my brain to hold the action and the inaction, the being and the, and the action in the world simultaneously. But I do think that all of these concepts invite us to do that. It doesn't invite us to just ignore. It invites us into a deeper engagement but it's coming from a new place if we can tap into our true nature. Mm. Yeah. Non-dualistic yeah. thinking, right? Yes. Easy. Yeah, no problem, right? Uh, no, <laughs> it takes work. It either will or it won't, and both and and neither. So, yeah, we have to put in some work. Oh, I love it. Anything else from you too? No, I just wanted to say thanks for including me in this uh, session. Mm -hmm. I see that we only have three more uh, in the book, and I'm excited to participate in those. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward. Don't no offense. This has been fun, but I I I got about I got about halfway into this and I thought, oh boy, we've got a lot to go. Yeah. And uh, so we got three more left. We'll knock these out and then we'll be done. But I really think these are conversations that you know, I don't know how many people are grabbing onto them, but I think these conversations will be useful for decades uh, yeah. on the internet, as long as the internet is around and the myth of the internet continues. So, right, right. <laughs> All right, you guys have a great day and thank you so much for, for doing this project with me. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Take it Bye. easy.